As you are sitting down, um, I was thinking about the verse where it talks about how perfect love casts out all fear. And I was paying attention to the words of the song where it talks about fear being swept away and how Ryan was praying about just in God's presence, our fear being taken away. And I started thinking about the Hunger Games. There's this place at... Some of the people here used to make fun of me because I use a lot of movie quotes when I talk here. But in The Hunger Games, President Snow is talking about um, con- control and fear and how the people who are under bondage, fear is the power that's there that's keeping them under control. And then he says, but there's something that's more powerful than fear and more dangerous, and it's hope. So as I was thinking about that, I was just thinking, God, would you let your hope come into this place in such a way as to do damage to our fear today? So, God, would you do damage to our fear by releasing your hope? Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Um, So I have some announcements for you guys. They are all Christmas announcements. I will keep them short and sweet. Uh, This Wednesday night, we have a youth Christmas party. It goes from 630 to 8. So if you have any teenagers, 6th grade to 12th grade, they are more than welcome to come. We'd love to hang out with them. We're going to do a white elephant gift exchange. So if they come, bring a present that's under $10. It can be funny. It can be serious. 630 to 8 this Wednesday. We are also having a youth tubing day on New Year's Day. We're not going to do a New Year's Eve party this year, but we are going to go tubing up at Snoqualmie if they're open by that point, which hopefully they will be. If you want more information on that, come and see me later. Next Sunday is our children's Christmas program. So if you have kids who are three years to fifth grade, uh, they, if they've been upstairs at all, they've been practicing for that program, this Saturday is a mandatory dress rehearsal. So if they're going to be a part of that program, they need to be here on Saturday. The dress rehearsal begins at 10:15 a.m. for any of the kids with speaking parts, 11 a.m. for just anyone who's singing three years up to fifth grade, and then the rehearsal is done at 12:15 p.m., so make sure your kids are there if they're going to be a part of that. And lastly, we have a Christmas Eve candlelight service this year that is from 5 to 6 on Thursday, December 24th, so if it works in your Christmas plans, we would love to have you here. That's going to be really cool. I'm going to go ahead and call the ushers forward. We're going to receive our offering. Uh, when we give, I was thinking about Christmas time and how it's really fun to give. Do you guys get excited about giving gifts to people? It's one of my favorite things around Christmas I lo- because I believe in people and I care about them. And when you give, there's something really exciting about that. And it's no different when we give here. We are passionate about our mission. We believe in it, and we are excited to join with God in blessing people and in partnering with him to advance his kingdom. So, God, um, would you just show us a new way of giving where we can not just do it as a, a task, something we check off, um, or just out of habit, uh, or because we feel like we have to, but because we are so excited about what you are doing and excited about your kingdom and excited to do damage to fear with you and to release hope. So would you bless this offering and use it for that? Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Okay, I'm going to be reading out of Luke 1, 5 through 25. In the time of Herod, king of Judah, There was a priest named Zechariah, who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth, who was a descendant of Aaron, both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were very old. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty, he was serving as priest before God. He was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zacharias saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zachariah. Your prayer has been heard. 
Your wife Elizabeth will bear a son, and you too, you shall call him John. He will be he he will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before the Lord in the sight or in the spirit of power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, How can I be sure of this? I'm an old man, and my wife is well along in years. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them but remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. After his wife, Elizabeth, became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion, the Lord had done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. Amen. Thank you, Megan. Church, Christmas is upon us. I am excited. I hope you are excited as we dive in here to this idea of hope. And what a powerful story. He said, well, why did you read about John the Baptist? Isn't this about Jesus being born? But we are uh, in the precursor of the beginning of the story. And uh, we'll dive into that here in uh, just a moment. But I've been, uh, I've been wrestling uh, this whole week with this idea of hope and uh, last night just praying and processing I had two intros all ready to go and in one intro there's actually a ladder over there behind the stage I was going to bring a ladder out and I was going to talk about hope and hope is the thing that we lean against as we go through life that we hope will hold up so when we attach things to our lives and we lean in we hope it'll hold up and there's so many things that we can lean into some of us lean into our careers and some of us lean into our health and some of us lean into our families and some of us lean into uh, the stock market some of us lean into whatever it is we lean into and whatever it is you lean into better be strong because you lay, once you put that ladder on there and you start climbing then faith kicks in hope is no longer the issue now it's faith right but uh i was wrestling because as I, as I thought through that, I, I just was really struck, and even just in worship as we begin to go to the Lord and invite his presence of this idea that hope can be one of the tougher things in our lives. Hope can be something that really stirs up in us sadness and frustration because hope is a thing that when it's gone, it really hurts. It's really tough. And I was thinking about... Just a couple of years ago, I was a youth pastoring. I, I was uh, working with a group of teens, and I used to go to uh, middle school, and I would kind of supervise the lunch, and then afterwards we'd play basketball with the kids, and you know it was just one of those cool things you can do and volunteer. And there's a kid I only met him a couple times. He was a basketball player, he was a jock, he was a cool kid, and 
uh, you know, he didn't come to my youth group or anything, but he could hit a jumper, so I knew who he was. You know, usually in middle school, if you can make a shot, then, you know, you stand out. And so, anyways, um, and I remember getting a phone call from the school district. I was just doing my thing, and I had, you know, kind of got to know a lot of the faculty members over there, and I got a phone call, and they said, hey, Pastor Mike, and, you know, they didn't always call me Pastor Mike. Sometimes they just called me Mike, and that was cool, and we were just kind of cool that way, and said, hey, Pastor Mike, can you come to the school? And I said, yeah, what's going on? He said, well, one of, one of our students took his, took his life last night, and there's just a, a real need for some people to come. And I said, yeah, I'll, I'll be there right away. And I remember walking on campus, and it was this student that I had played basketball with just a few times. I didn't know him very well, but he was cool. He was popular. He was a good-looking kid. He was a jock. And I remember thinking how heavy it just was in my soul to think of how a young life, seventh grader, could feel so hopeless that he would take the steps to take his life. And I, and I, remember, I remember just crying. I mean, there's not answers in those moments. You just cry and you hug people and you be there. And I remember just thinking, man, hopelessness. What a powerful thing. And it's hard because in our Christian journey, we don't like to talk about times when we feel hopeless. We like to pretend that we're not hopeless. We like to show up and present well. And then when we're, when we're exposed to someone who's struggling with hopelessness, we don't have good answers for them. We don't know how to interact. And so whether intentionally or unintentionally, we do things that are superficial and maybe even cruel because we don't know what else to do or we withdraw. We say things like, cheer up. This too shall pass. Or don't you know Jesus is the answer? You'll be okay. And in those moments of hopelessness, the, the, the metaphor I had in, in my mind is it'd be like if, if Ryan and I were playing basketball and I crossed over, and his leg actually broke. This is, you know, just a hypothetical, right? And he's on the ground, and his leg is broken. I mean, there's like, you know, tibia and fibia just going different directions. And I were to look down at him and be like, just relax. Jesus got this for you, bro. Just remember Jesus, right? You guys would think that was cruel, if he were to come in here with a broken leg and we were to like say, dude, what are you wearing that cast for? Why are you on crutches? Jesus. Like you would think, man, that's rude. If you did that to him when he came in on crutches, I'd probably ask you to leave. I'm like, dude, that's not cool. Because if we could physically see the pain and the wound. We would never do that. But there's other kinds of wounds. That attack our hope, that get in our heart, that get in our soul. And we carry sometimes those wounds and we carry them deep and they're in us. And then here comes the followers of Christ saying, Jesus, you'll be fine. Just suck it up. And just like those physical wounds, those, those brokenness. And they, did we get real in here too quick? Some of you are still with me. And I was just wrestling with this understanding that so many of us face just real stuff that makes us feel really hopeless. And what in the world do we do with that? What is our response? What can we, I was thinking about the first time 
Mm, it all emotional. I mean, it's getting started here. First time I, I, I was thinking about first time I knew that in me there was a thing that was hopeless. I don't know where you would find that at, but I, I dug deep into my core and I was preparing and I and I remember I remember I visually remember it. It's really powerful. I told a story yesterday about my crazy cousins, but I did grow up with some crazy family and and uh, I remember I was young. I was really young. I probably five or six and uh, and I was uh, left in the care of my older cousins. And uh, it was night, but it wasn't late. It wasn't bedtime late. It was dark, but it wasn't bedtime late. And they were watching a show. Now, you've got to remember, back in the days, uh, most households only had, like, one TV. One, and it was big. Like, it was, like, you know, 30 pounds, and it was maybe 80 pounds. I don't know. It was, it was a big old piece. It was like a furniture. It had, like, an old-fashioned stereo in it, and there was antennas. And, like, the, you were the remote control. You had to get up and, like, actually move things, like, to change the channel, right? And, and they were watching a show, and I, I remember it was, like a, it was like a scary show. And I remember that, that it was probably good that they looked over at me and realized I was too young to be in the room for this show. But we had a small house, so there was only one other place for me to go, and that was to bed. And so I, my cousins were like, you've got to go to bed, because we're not going to change the show. And, <laughs> and so I'm young, and I'm like, no, it's not my bedtime yet. And I remember my cousins picking me up. And just carrying, and I'm like flailing, you know, little, little mini Pastor Mike, just flailing. And they toss me in the room, and I'm pounding on the door, and I open the door, and I'm screaming, you know, I'm not going to bed. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm in my, getting the conniption fit. And I remember it. I, one of them took their shoe off and just wedged it under the door, right? So I couldn't get out. <laughs> Some of you, this is not a parenting tip, right? These are, first of all, don't leave your children with their cousins. But, but secondly, no. <laughs> secondly, don't wedge your shoe under the door, right? I'm traumatized. I'm telling you, I'm sharing my pain. And so I remember, I, and I, you know, I'm hurking on the door, and I can't open the door, and I'm screaming. You know, it's not my bedtime. I'm screaming. And, I, I gosh, I've got to be probably, you know, about six uh, or seven years old. And, and I remember thinking that there was no one in my life that was, like, powerful enough to help me. And I remember, I remember it clear as day, that it, it was the last time I ever cried for my biological dad. And I remember I, he had, I hadn't seen him since I was five, um, so it had been a couple years. But, you know, and, and, uh, and I remember just screaming and crying because I was trying to think of someone who was big and strong enough to, to maybe help me out of the situation. And I remember crying. I remember screaming, and I remember sitting on my bed and just kicking my feet in, in, in full, like, venting mode. And then I remember just realizing and feeling so alone. Like there was no one that could come and rescue me in that moment. And I, I, I remember, I mean, it's in there. The first time I ever felt that level of just hopelessness. And it's real. And it gets in us. And it gets in our hearts. And it gets in our lives. And we carry that. I carried that for almost 20 years. That sense on the inner piece of my core. That in me there was a sense of just on my own. I'm, and I'm alone. And I've got to, and no big bad is going to come and protect me. I got to do this. And so we talk about hope, and we think, what is it? What is this thing that can take us to a place of sadness and desperation? That that can take us, and when it's missing, it, we're just so alone. And then we look at this amazing, incredible Christmas story, and we get into the Word of God and the promises of God. And we realize that hope maybe is something more than what we even believe it could be. So I want to take you into the word of God. And we're going to go through this story. And we're going to talk about what God does when it comes 
to hope. And we're going to get as far as we can. And if we don't get all the way there, we'll put a comma and we'll keep going. And you guys will just have to come back and get the rest of it. But I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm, pretty, I'm pretty moved this morning. So if you got your Bibles, you can get into Luke chapter 1. And uh, we're going to get into the story of a man and a woman struggling with hopelessness. Hopelessness creeps in so many ways. You know, there are storms and big catastrophic events that that bring us to a place sometimes where we're wondering, God, are you there? What's happening? But sometimes hopelessness creeps in incrementally over time, slowly. And and uh, and here's a story of of a couple on the cusp of the first Christmas, really in a place trying to figure out, God, what what are you doing? What's going on here? And we meet Zechariah, and we meet his wife, Elizabeth. And I love this. I love that Luke tells the story. You know, Luke, who authored this book, also wrote the book of Acts, is the only non-Jewish person to write in the, in the scriptures, in the New Testament of the Bible. And Luke was actually commissioned to write this. And you see in about Acts chapter 16, Luke comes on to the scene, and he becomes friends with Paul. And Luke's a doctor. He's educated, and he's sharp. And, you know, we can only infer from the text that that Paul connected with him and Theophilus, who uh, was Luke's kind of like sponsors. A lot of time, uh, people who got medical training and degrees in this time that were educated that way, they were actually servants in households of wealthy people who they had like their family doctor that they trained to do this. And so Luke is sharp. Now, I love this because, you know, Paul talks about how, uh, you know, when he when he starts meeting people and, and people who are leading the church, that not many of them are wise, not many of them are uh, are educated. Uh, but God chose the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. Right. And sometimes we assume that means that not many means not any. That's not true. There were some guys who were really sharp. Paul was one of them who had training, who were uh trained and able to put together materials. And the reason I tell you that is that Luke's story comes from firsthand accounts that he went out and gathered and collected over time so that he could compose this incredible story of the origin of the church. Luke's from Antioch, which is where the church kind of exploded after it left Jerusalem. And so he witnessed all of these things happen. He knew all of these people who were involved. He talked to them. He took notes. He was fastidious and, and, and organized and sharp. And so when you read his writings, they're intense. But you also have to understand that he's getting them from somewhere. And where do you think he gets this story of the birth of Jesus and the birth of John the Baptist? Historically, we believe he talked to Mary. He talked to Mary. He said, Mary, tell me what went down. This is amazing. And so he's got this incredible story of uh, uh, that begins with Zechariah and Elizabeth. And because he's uh, a medical doctor, because he's attached to detail, we get incredible detail of what was happening in this moment. And so here's Luke and he introduces us. And I love this because he, he starts his story where the old Testament story ends. And so if you've never read the last couple lines of the old Testament in uh, Malachi, I'll start us there and then I'll jump us forward. The, the story kind of ends and then God goes dark, silent for 400 years. There's no prophets. There's no, uh, there's no word of the Lord. The, the people are just in their temple worship and they're trying to figure it out. But the end of Malachi, ver, uh, chapter 4, verse 4, it's the end of the Old Testament. So if you're in Luke already, you can just jump back two chapters because you, you, know, you get Matthew, Mark, uh, Luke, and then before Matthew is Malachi. And then the last couple 
couple of verses there, so you know I'm not making this up. Out of Malachi, he says, uh, remember the law of my servant Moses, verse 4, uh, the decrees and the laws that I gave to him at Horeb for all of Israel. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. Does that sound familiar for what we just read from the angel? And the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. And then, poof, silence. Right. So Luke understands because he's technical and he's like a historian. He's a doctor. He says, that's the end of the story. Let me introduce you correctly to the beginning of the next chapter of the story. And it's got to start where it ended off in order for it to make sense. You guys tracking with me? Right. So we got to introduce what God said was going to happen. And that happens through this family of Zechariah and Elizabeth. So we jump to this incredible story, and you start seeing a picture of a couple who have really, for a long time, lost hope. And so in their lives, Zechariah is a priest. Now, at first, as I approached this, I thought, well, that's really cool. He's a priest. That's kind of important. Then I started taking a kind of a, a, a broader picture of what was going on. At this time, if you were born as a descendant of Aaron, you were a priest by birth. Okay, You were in that trade. You had to become a priest. So from Aaron to Zechariah, the family has gotten big. Okay, And so there are approximately 20,000 priests at this time. Now get this picture. There's one temple. So a single church with a staff of 20,000 is hard to manage, right? Not everyone can get a piece of the pie all the time. And so although by birth he is responsible as a priest of that line, he's really not a significant community member. He's not, you know, he would most likely have a very small kind of body that he ministered to in his small town. He's from a small town. Uh, You would imagine that probably he had about maybe 50 people that were mostly related through some, you know, through some connecting piece that, that he would kind of minister to on a weekly basis. And then the way that they structured the church at that time, the temple, is that everybody was required by law to serve that was a priest. So what they did is they said twice Twice a year, you have to come to Jerusalem, and you're on for that week to serve in the temple. So as a priest, you worked two times a year for a week. So once every six months, your group was called in, and you would make the trek to Jerusalem, and you would work at the temple for that week. So you have a picture of what's going on. Now, he's an older dude. He's in the scripture, so he's been doing this for a long time long time he's of no real reputation he's in a, from a small town and two times a year he goes to the temple and he does his priestly duties now his wife elizabeth she's also from the tribe of aaron which is awesome uh from him because as a status point that would be as a priest like the best thing he could do to marry a proper jewess uh who is from this this tribe also and so uh, so he has this great relationship with her but they have a catastrophic thing in their life they can't have kids Now, Luke's a doctor, he's a physician, so he points out that there's an actual reason for that, that it's because she actually is barren. Now, they're advanced in age, and you've got to understand, in this culture at this time, they really firmly believe that children were a blessing from the Lord, and if you did not have children, then you were essentially under a curse from the Lord. And in a small town, 
if the pastor isn't having a family, which is considered a blessing, the whispers start going around that maybe something is wrong in the family, right? Come on, ladies, you know what happens when something doesn't look right and you guys all get together and you start talking about, I don't know what's going on, right? What? Oh, the ladies didn't like that? All right, well, fellas, well, the fellas aren't off the hook either, right? You know, you know we do the same thing, and you start sizing up the guy who's in front and going, hey, what does he think he got that I don't got, or you know, whatever it is, and, and who is he to tell me, and look at how big my family is and what God's blessed me with, and he doesn't have the things that I have. And you can just imagine this gets into their heart. And, life. and year after year after year, twice a year he's at the temple serving in this group of folks. And he's praying and he's asking God, why isn't this happening for me? What's going on? Why don't we have this? Now, you also have to remember it was grounds, not having a baby, was grounds for a legal divorce. So he could have put her out and she would have been in disgrace, taken a new wife and tried to redeem and reclaim his reputation and his name, but he wouldn't do it. So he loved her. He cared for her and they grew old together and they went through life with this overarching burden of we just can't have a baby. God's been silent for 400 years. In that 400 years, all kinds of cool things have happened. You should read the history of that. The Persians were in charge. Alexander the Great showed up, wiped everybody out. He dies, leaves no one in charge. There's four of his generals are fighting wars. And Israel is just kind of like on the way between the northern and southern kingdoms, just getting totally ransacked. And then somewhere out of there, um, uh, Pompey shows up and establishes Rome. And so so we, we see this Persian Empire in charge. And now we see this Roman Empire in charge. And they've just wiped everybody out. And everything has kind of come under subjugation. And so, so where is God? 400 years. And I can't have a kid, and here I am, and I have this wound in me. And I'm trying to hope in the promises of God, and I'm trying to hope that God can do what he says he can do, but it hasn't happened for me. Why? That's the story we walk into. And Zechariah's got up in years. I'm, I'm verse 5 through 7 right there. And uh, so let's pick up uh, chapter one verse seven it says but they had no children because elizabeth was barren and they're both along in years verse eight it says once when zachariah's division was on duty remember twice a year so it's his rotation he's on duty he was serving as a priest before god and it says he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple and to burn incense now this is cool they, as they came in, everybody chose a number. Then they bingo styled out, right? And, you know, A47, bingo. And he's, you're the guy. Now, here's a big deal. This, if there's 20,000 priests, you are extremely lucky if you get chosen to be one of the guys to go into the temple and do that priestly duty. You actually went into, um, uh, past the outer courts, um, past the uh, the two levels where the Jewish women were and then where the Jewish men were, then you, then uh, then you got into not the holy of holies, but the 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 in right outside the holy of holies. It was like as close as you could get to the holy of holies where God dwelt, right? And among the people, it was a really big deal. And one guy got to do it, period. And it was like a lottery. Now he's old; he's never got to do it, and he gets chosen. This is an incredibly big deal for him it's like whoa me 
the guy who the guy who doesn't have a kid, the guy who's from a small town, the guy who's not famous, the guy who's not established. I'm just old guy Zachariah, and I get to go in and light the incense. Now, twice a day, uh, they would sacrifice a lamb there, and then they would light the incense, and the incense was like the prayers of all the people being offered up. And then what would happen is the priest would light the incense. They would sit there and pray, and then they would come out of there, and this was like the moment. This is like the Super Bowl of the priesthood, right? You would get to say the ironic blessing over all of the rest of the guys that were there serving outside of the temple. So they would, they would surround the, uh, the, the temple, and they would pray, and then you would come out, and you'd get this big moment. Your whole life you're hoping to do this. Be the guy that gets to come out and say the ironic blessing, and that's the, the Lord bless you. And keep you. The Lord make his light to shine upon you. The Lord give you peace. Like that's the, I mean, it's amazing, right? And that's the moment that you're hoping for. So that's what's happening with him right now, okay? And so, uh, so he goes in. And, uh, and, and here's what, I, I love this picture, okay? So he goes in, you remember he's old, and, and he gets to, his chance to go in there. And everybody else is praying. And they would, on this marble ground, they would kneel. And they would pray. And they would wait. For the priest to go in, he lights the incense. This shouldn't take that long. He prays. He comes out. He speaks the blessing. They all get up and go away. So there's a cool thing that's happening here. They're all praying, and in goes Zechariah. Now, most of us want the guy on Sunday to not take too much time, okay? You're sitting in a relatively comfortable chair right now. Imagine if you had to kneel on marble and wait for me to shut my mouth before you could leave. What would be going through your head, right? Please, dear God, on top of blessing the prayers and the the lighting of the incenses, help this old guy to move a little quicker so that we can get out of here because this hurts and we're praying. We're right. That's what's happening. So I just want want you to get the picture. okay? and so so he goes he goes in and his job is to go in there, come out. And then the Lord bless you and keep you. Lord, make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face to you and give you peace. That's what he's supposed to say. But verse 11 happens. It says, and an angel of the Lord appeared to him. Standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was startled and he was gripped with fear. And, and that makes sense because there's not supposed to be anybody else in there, right? This is his big moment. And so what is this guy doing in here? And it's an angel. And it says, but the angel says to him, don't be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. What prayer? For year after year after year after year after year. God, we have this need. It's physical. But it's more than that. It's relational. It's attached into my identity, and there's a wound in there, and, and I know my hope is in you, but this hasn't happened yet. So don't be afraid. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you're to give him the name John, and he'll be a joy and a delight to you. And he'll be great in the sight of the Lord, and he's never to take wine or fermented gru- uh, drink. And he'll be filled from the Holy Spirit, even from birth. And it's amazing. It's amazing. Now, I love this because the scriptures describe Zechariah as, as blameless and upright. Now, that's pretty cool. I don't know about you, but if, if that's what they put on my tombstone, I mean, that's like a rock star. If that's the, the, obit, the obit, right, if that's the thing that's left, the legacy, you know, he, he didn't have everything together. But the, what he could control, he was upright and he was blameless. That's pretty powerful. So in the midst of his hopelessness, he held on to being faithful to what he knew he needed to be faithful to. Yet even in that, they were still barren and they didn't have what they hoped they would have. Now, here's what's really cool. Even though they were hopeless, they did a few things. One, they stayed connected. He didn't just kind of bow out. He didn't just retire. He kept on plugging. He kept on staying connected to the thing that God had him connected to. He also stayed serving. 
Sometimes we get hopeless and the first thing we want to do is disconnect. The first thing we want to do is shut it off. The first thing we want to say, do is say, I can't be engaged anymore because hopelessness has crept in and I just can't find the energy, the life, the light to do it. But he doesn't do that. He stays connected. He stays serving. You know what's crazy? I was looking through the scriptures at all these different guys that struggled with hopelessness. Abraham struggling with hopelessness. Elijah, right, calls down fire. The next chapter, he's saying to God, Why, everybody wants to kill me. Why don't you just do it? It's pretty funny. I, I, I was looking at it again, and I was like, he is so angry that Jezebel wants to kill him that he's like, I hope I just die. That, I, it makes no sense, but that's what happens when we get hopeless, right? I'm, I don't care if I die. I just don't want that person to get the pleasure of it. So God, just kill me here, right? That's what hopelessness does, though. We start thinking insane, right? Jonah, dealing with hopeless. God, don't send me there. Don't make me do that. Don't make me love who I don't love. I'd rather just be dead. You know, we look at that and we kind of, it's easy to smirk and go, but these are genuine suicidal thoughts from the fathers of our faith. Wow. What does God do? He sends, well, Elijah, he sends him food. Sometimes you just need to eat and get your mind right, right? He's like, get your blood sugar up because you're just like, you have lost your mind, right? Jonah, he gives him something to do. He's like, you've got a mission. You need to remember you have a purpose. You have to remember that you're called, right? And here we are with Zechariah. He sends a messenger, sends a friend, someone to encourage him. Someone to remind him who God really is. And I love this because only someone who's battling hopelessness would have the silly response that Zechariah has here. Verse 18, he goes, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and I'm well along in years. Okay. I just need you to get the picture of this. He's hit the lottery. Twice a year he goes to the temple. For 70 years he's never gone in. He's in the temple He's in the room next to the Holy of Holies where no one's supposed to be. And an angel appears and says, hey, this is going to happen. And you know what he does? How can I be sure of this? Are you freaking kidding me? An angel has appeared. You're in the Holy of Holies. You've hit the lottery. And, the, and someone is telling you that God has spoken, that the true desire of your heart is about to happen. And you know what you are? You're skeptical. That's what hopelessness does to us. It brings skepticism right into the middle of our miracles. The angel answered, I'm Gabriel. Now, Gabriel hasn't been around for about, what, since Daniel? Been a while since we've seen Gabriel. Probably looks the same. I'm sure he's looking good. All right? But yeah, he's all ripped. Uh, he's like, I stand in the presence of God and I've been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until this day happens because you did not believe my words, which came true at the proper time. He says, Hey, you know what? Why don't you just shut your mouth? Right? He's like, I don't know how much more God has to do. So because you're having a hard time processing this, you just need to shut your mouth. I'm not right now. I'm just telling you what he said. He said, hey, zip it. Something has gotten backwards here. You're missing what I've called you to do. Fellas, 
we do this all the time. God's providing our blessing, and we just like, ah, let me just weigh this out a little bit more. God's opening the door, and we're like, ah, let me just get one more pros and cons list going. Ah, let me just process it. And God's like, hey, can you just receive the promise that I've given to you without walking into some kind of tension and doubt? And he can't manage it, which is hilarious. Um, <laughs> so, so he's like, how do I know? How do I know? No, um, but anyways, it's pretty awesome. First, yeah, no, that was uh, Whitney. Uh, Meanwhile, meanwhile, verse 21, I love this. The people were waiting. Remember these poor guys? They're out here. Seriously. Did the old guy die in there? We're out here. Like, why is he not coming back out? He has one job. Go in there, sprinkle some stuff on the, on the altar, come back out, speak the blessing, like do your job. He's got one job. So they're out here. They're, they're dying. And then it says when he came out, he couldn't speak to him. He has one job to come out and speak the blessing. And he blew it because he couldn't accept. That's what hopelessness does with us, though. It gets inside of our hearts, and it drifts us farther away from the call of God. And then we can't see the promises of God activated in our lives. We can't see it, and we miss it. And then we miss the cool things that God's laid out for us because hopelessness has gotten in and just hamstrung us from receiving what God's planned for us. He couldn't speak to them. They realized he'd seen a vision in the temple because he kept making signs to them, but he remained unable to speak. Then we see that Elizabeth gets pregnant, which is awesome. And then verse 26, I'm going to jump ahead. It says, then in the sixth month, this is what happens next. God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth to a town in Galilee to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph. And we know where this story is going. But it started with God saying, I'm going to fulfill the promises that I've made. Now, you've got to remember, generations have passed and not seen this promise happen. Hope is about believing the promises of God, even if we don't see them in the living. Hebrews tells us that that person after person went to the grave believing in the promises of God, but didn't even get to see them in the land of the living. But hope is what sustained them. Their faith in God is what sustained them because they understood that God is who he says he is and can do what he says he can do, even if I don't see it. In the land of the living. And then when it shows up, we don't know what to do with it. It floors us. I love this picture of hope. In Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19, the author of Hebrews says that we have hope as an anchor for our soul. It's firm and it's secure. And it enters into the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf. He's become our high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And here's the thing that hope does. Hope is an anchor. When we believe that God is who he says he is and will do what he says he'll do. When we believe in the promises of God, we anchor our heart and our lives to those things. Now, here's the thing. What what does an anchor do? We throw an anchor in the water. No, I'm not a boatsman, so if I'm off on this, you guys can help me, right? But we throw an anchor in the water for a specific reason. It's because we're concerned that we won't remain in the space where we intended to remain. So we put the anchor in the water so that though we may still drift, we'll only drift so far. Now, here's the thing. 
I was reading about this because I wasn't sure. You generally, in a giant storm, don't anchor, right? You ride that thing out because uh, at that point it will, like, tumble you, right? So the visual of the anchor isn't about just making it through the catastrophic storms of our lives. The visual of the anchor is that what happens is we just drift. We drift a little bit away. And we drift a little bit away. And the weight of the world and the weight of life and decisions that we have to make and the pressure and God not seeming to do what we think he should do in that moment, it just lets us drift a little bit away. And then we drift a little bit further. And a little bit more time goes by and we drift a little bit further. And we drift a little bit further. And the author of Hebrews says, what hope does is it anchors our soul, our thinker, our being, our, our, who we are. It anchors us to the promises of God so that those things happen. Because here's the thing. It's cruel to get into someone's face and be like, what are you doing struggling with hope? You should just be Jesus and be fine. No, it's okay to go through things in this earth. We go through them. Zechariah went through them. The, all of those heroes that we talked about went through them. They literally got to the place where they were willing to die because life just didn't seem okay. But they stayed anchored that though they drift they only go but so far and some of us with hope the struggle has been we've let ourselves just drift a little too far right we just drift a little too far and god's saying no 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 you anchor yourselves to the promises that are in this book to who i am to what i said about who you are to what i accomplished for you and christmas Ooh, here we go. Christmas was about depositing the greatest promise that we could ever anchor our lives to. That God so loves you. That though the world would fall apart from time to time, come on, though it's broken here, though things don't work out the way you think or would want them to work out, though we lean our ladder from time to time on the things that don't stay connected, we will only go but so far because we know what God did. And even if I don't see the, the evidence of his hand in the living, I understand that I, my, my hope is in more. My hope is in what's to come because of what he did. It's bigger than that. It's bigger than that. That's not easy all the time. But it's true. But it's true. And when I get, see, I, I, this is hard because I, I'm going to be... I'm going to do some therapy for me right we're here, right? Okay. And so, because I realize that I, I struggle with this. So I know it's real. And that six-year-old boy comes crawling up and says, no one's got you. You're alone. You've got to do. And I see it happening now. I didn't know what it was for years. But I see it coming up inside of me. And I have to sit back and I have to go, no. The promises of God are bigger than that. Someone does have my back. I do have a father in heaven who loves me. And I have to confront those feelings with the truth and the promise of God. That's what hope does. It comes in and gives us authority to move back to the promise, though our circumstance wouldn't even look ahead. Here's the thing. Your situation. Say this correctly. How you feel about your situation really is evidence of where your hope's at. Because there's people who have been through what you've been through and maintain their hope, right? But how we feel about it, we go through it and it's us and it's like the hope just breaks down. What's the difference? Where do we put our hope? Are we anchored? Are we tethered? Do we allow ourselves to drift because we start drifting pretty far and those promises are way back there? And it happens subtly. 
It happens. Sometimes there's a catastrophic event, but sometimes it's subtly. Sometimes it's a catastrophic event, and then it just rocks and rocks and rocks and rocks, and the wave and the pressure of this world just takes us further and further away. And God's saying, you need to stay tethered and anchored to hope. What did Zachariah do? He just kept serving. He kept staying faithful. He kept connected. He stayed close to people who, 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 who even though, you know, the, the reputation in his town may have been whatever it was, he stayed close to the promises of God. He stayed close and he stayed connected. I think about Elijah and, and he's so frustrated and he's crying out to God that he wishes he was dead. And God says, you got to get up, eat some food, rest. And then go connect to the next generation of people who are going to take the torch from you. And he puts them with people. I mean, there's God is so close and so near in those moments. It's we who drift, right? The anchor hasn't gone anywhere. We just drift in. God's like, hey, just stay connected. And I'm going to be practical for just a second. Our hope is it's not in stuff because if I, I... I could give you, like, money, and it wouldn't give you hope. I can give you, if you had health all of a sudden, it wouldn't be hope. Hope is connected to the promises of God. It's not stuff. It's who God is. It's who God is. Because God so loved us. I'm, I'm wrestling because I want us to, to close here, but I just, I want us to be honest that it's okay that, that we struggle with this. It's okay that the holiday surfaces this, and it's okay that we wrestle with this, and it's okay that we do all those things. What isn't okay is to let ourselves drift too far from home. And then here's the next piece, and this is, this is amazing. When we are tethered to hope, God can move through us to be ambassadors of hope. And then it gets really exciting. And then God can, can, can move through us because we've held on to the promises, right? And so we can be with people who have drifted far from those promises and say, yeah, I understand, but here is what's true. And here's who God is. And I love you. And I'll be there with you. And then we're not these callous, you know, oh, just Jesus and you should be fine. But we can be there with people. So, so here's my hope as we get into the next couple weeks of Christmas. Here's my hope for us as a church, as a body, that we would, first of all, be tethered to hope. The hope that came when a baby came. The hope that came when an angel showed up. The hope that came, though 400 years of silence preceded it, that God just said, next chapter is coming. Right? Your next chapter is coming. Here it comes. Here's the promises, right? That we would be tethered to that hope. And then we could then be hope for others, ambassadors of hope. How do we do that? Well, there's all kinds of ways. When we got ministries that are here that are going. I watched person after person bring gifts to foster families. I watched, um, you know, I've, I've watched the Freezing Nights ministry just bless uh, homeless in our community. I've watched um, your giving go to things like New Beginnings and, and, and help teen moms who are uh, giving them education. I've watched it go to Teen Challenge and people who are recovering from addiction. I've watched all those things. So there's ways that we are partnering to be ambassadors for hope, but but. But for some of us, it just has to get really real. Maybe just in our families, we need to be ambassadors of hope. Maybe just in your neighborhood. Maybe there's a neighborhood kid and and you could be an ambassador of hope to them. You could just say, hey, you know what? You're loved. What can I do to help? Be careful you start asking that. Dangerous. You can be an agent of hope. 
what if, what if that couple that God's been putting on your heart to serve or to help, or you've just been kind of, oh, what if you just said, you know what, I'm going to, can I come and just give you some childcare so you can go on a date? Can you imagine the kind of hope that that could bring maybe to someone if you said, you know, I'm just going to, can I just, I'm going to watch your kids and, and you just go out and you get some, I mean, there are so many ways. So, so here's my prayer for you. Would, would we be through this season ambassadors of the hope that we've received? Those of us that have received it. Would you find ways to think through that? So I'm going to ask you to stand and we're going to get ready to close here. And, and here's. Sometimes it's just words. Do you know, there's something so powerful that you just don't understand the power of words. God created the universe through the spoken word. And we're created in the image of God. And so things get moved and happen when we speak them. And sometimes an agent of hope just looks at someone and says, you know, I believe in you. There's nothing that's impossible with God. You can do it. Maybe you would be an ambassador of hope. You know... It's been a heavy week. It's been a joyful week and a good week, but it's been a heavy week. And there's been um, even just physical and medical needs that have just come across the, the, the church. You know, here's the thing. Seldom do people call the church and just be like, hey, I'm just checking in and let you know everything's awesome. Right? High five, Pastor Mike, and high five, Jesus, and I'm on, right? Usually the contact points are crisis, okay? Usually the contact points are things, you know, have happened here and it's tough. And, uh, and we've been moving to meet needs and do what we can do. But can I, can I just, as a family, just be honest with you? There's so many just huge, real needs. And I want to invite you to be ambassadors of hope. And so, so whatever that means, maybe for you, something stirred in you that there's just a, a, a person or a family you're aware of and you're thinking, man, I could definitely, I could bring them a meal. I could take them out to dinner. I could watch their kids so they could go out. Maybe that's what it is. I don't know. The other thing I want to invite you, and, and listen, this is not about a second offering, but sometimes we just need to put our money where our mouth is. And there's little cards in front of the chairs. And maybe the Lord would just put on your heart. You know what I really want to do? I just want to bless. And there's some very specific needs. We have some families because of medical issues that can't work right now. They don't know if they're going to be able to pay their bills through the holidays, let alone celebrate a Christmas. And as a church, we're just partnering to, to support them and do what we can in benevolence. And maybe you would just say, you know what? I just want to be an ambassador of hope. And I got a little cash in my pocket that I was going to spend on coffee. And I'm going to put it in the envelope, just write hope on it. And there's a, there's a box right behind my beautiful wife right there in the back corner that says ties or whatever. And you just want to slip it in there and write the word hope on there if you write your name on there it'll be tied uh, counted into your tithe and so you know we'll we'll know who did it but even if you don't want to you just write the word hope on there and you slip it in there and you just want to be an ambassador of hope that's a way you could do it but we're going to just we're going to be intentional as a family this is what we can do as a family of just bringing hope where we can bring hope I got to tell you, I've been in living rooms praying with folks this week that are just going through and I've seen God God doing miracles right Sean God's doing miracles it's huge Come on. God is faithful. So it's big. But there's so many. And and so so in some ways, if God would just put that on your heart, whether it's to pray, whether it's to give, whether it's find a way to serve. But let's do that as a family, because that's what hope does. It anchors things. It brings life. It's about what's to come. God, thanks. Thanks for this wonderful body. Thanks, God, for letting us just be real about how hopelessness can invade and take root. Thanks for being the answer to hopelessness. Thanks that the answer to hopelessness is the promises 
of the creator of the universe. So many promises. Promises to never leave us or forsake us. Promises that you have a hope and a future for us. You know, the literal definition of hope, it means an expectation of something good. And we have an expectation of something good. Not just good, but but beyond amazing. The expectation of an eternity with you. Of a new body that's not broken. Of a new uh, and renewed uh, uh, spirit, God. And, and that is amazing. And that's what we have. And that's what you deposited. So we put our hope and we put our trust in you. And we thank you for it. And, and so so I, I just pray that we would take action. Whatever you stirred in our heart to do. If it's to just... God, we're not taking an offering, so it's not a part of the service. But if it's just to grab an envelope and, and put something in there, write the word hope on it and drop it in the box, then, then we'll do that. And you'll use it to bring hope. If it's to make a phone call, God, I pray that if there's a person in our heart right now, that we would put teeth and action into that. That we wouldn't just leave this place going, whew, that was emotional, but I'm glad I'm not emotional anymore. I'm not going to do that. No, it wouldn't be an emotional response. It would be an actual response in hope to be an ambassador of hope for you because of what you've done for us. Help us to be agents of hope, I pray, oh Jesus. And help us through this season, no matter what the situation is, not to lean our ladder and lean our life on anything else but the promises of God and who you are. That hope showed up and became flesh. That it dwelt among us. Thank you so much, God, for the hope we have in you. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, I love you guys. It's been, it's, been, it's been wild to be the new guy at Christmas. Can I just say that? And, and realize that we're, we're family now, and this is just tripping me out. And, 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 I, and I just love it, and I am so incredibly grateful to be right here. Do you know that you guys are the answer to, to anchoring me in hope that God is faithful and that he'd show up, that if I took my family and moved to a, a strange city where people cheer for a bird that wears blue, um, right, that, that God would still be faithful. And I joke and I jest, but I want you to know from my family to yours as one family, Merry Christmas. Thank you for loving us, and, and, uh, and we love you guys back. And, and would you just hug somebody and have an amazing week in the Lord. And uh, make sure you come back next week, and we do the kids stuff. It'll be fun. We'll have a great time. The prayer teams will come up here. If, uh, if hopelessness has been a thing and you need some prayer, I have seen prayer move the hand of God this week. Okay? This week I've seen it. So please come and, and get prayed for it. We love you. God bless you. Have an awesome week in the Lord.